welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg, this week investigating Britain's departure from the European Union. Are we going through a dad's army Brexit? There are endless wartime or immediate post-wartime movies depicting essentially a propaganda image of Britain as this little nation standing against the might of the the Nazi war machine. Dad's army, too. We'll be exploring the extent to which Brexit was driven by nostalgia for empire. This notion that by cutting ourselves free from the oppression of the EU, a new global Britain will recreate some sort of notion of, of an empire, this time without any actual empire. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't funded by a media tycoon or an oligarch, nor do we have to bow and scrape to any corporate interest or advertiser. Instead, we rely on people like you becoming subscribers to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It would make a wonderful Christmas present, and while you're at it, why not take out a subs for yourself as well? At just £36 a year, it is tremendous value. You'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, wherever you stand on the Brexit debate and whatever trade deal is eventually struck or not with Brussels, this much is clear. Britain's decision to leave the EU is one of the key political events of the 21st century and it will have a profound impact for years to come. So what drove the Leave campaign? Issues such as immigration, the economy and sovereignty dominated the public debate. But three Byline Times writers, editor Hardeep Matharu, Otto English and Jonathan Liss have been exercised by a deeper underlying reason. Britain's imperial decline and an unresolved sense of loss about its once dominant place in the world. Hardeep kicked off our four-way conversation. It's this unresolved identity crisis, which I think is a really sort of significant and fascinating aspect of the entire Brexit project, really. You know, this notion that by cutting ourselves free from the oppression of the EU, a new global Britain will recreate some sort of notion of of an empire, this time without any actual empire. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting sort of aspect of it, which, which isn't really discussed, which is almost a bit more psychological if you can apply that to a country. You know, when Britain joined what was the EEC, it was in part because of the need for Britain to find a role in the wake of losing its colonies and its whole imperial project ending. And I think that insecurity that has always been at the heart of what is Britain's identity, what is its role on the global stage, if it's not the British Empire, I don't think that's been resolved. And I don't think we really talk about it, but it absolutely is there. And that leads into the wider aspect of Britain's imperial culture, I would say, that Boris Johnson is almost returning to, this notion of an imperial state without an empire. These notions that are so steeped in imperial thinking, which are in our culture and our institutions, uh, again, they're not really talked about. And I mean, we had a great example of it 
just last week when Gavin Williamson, uh, the education secretary, was asked about the COVID vaccine. And he said, oh, well, I- I'm not surprised that we've got it first because we're better than all these other countries. And again, it's just it is so that sort of thinking is so sort of has so seeped into the Brexit project and also, I think, been weaponized, you know, and I think something that Brexiters were very good at doing were honing in on this need for people to have a sense of their place in the world or their country, a sense of who they are. Identity politics is a term that is sort of used everywhere now, but I think identity is without doubt a very important concept that has emerged politically and culturally in recent years. And I think Brexiters were very canny to to tap into that, you know, this need for people to have the dignity of of who they are recognized. And I mean, we've talked before about my personal take on this. My parents, who are both immigrants to this country, have lived here for more than 40 years. My father grew up in British Kenya. My mother grew up in post-partition India. Both of them voted to, to leave the EU. And, you know, it's often these considerations, I think, are often unconscious. So I don't think that they walk around thinking about their sort of imperial past or growing up in former colonies or under British rule. But that when I spoke to them, there, there was no doubt that this kind of love-hate relationship with Britain had led to them to them voting for leave. So on one hand, they felt very British, you know, Britain is a mother country, and they felt an intense loyalty to Britain. On the other hand, they felt that, you know, because Britain had done some questionable things in countries like Kenya and India, that Britain owed an allegiance to them as immigrants rather than for example, European immigrants. And so there's a lot of complexity even there. And and I do think that you can see that complexity in a much wider way in terms of how, you know, how the Brexit project has been conceived and put out there, which is, you know, this notion of mythologizing a past that never really existed and premised on this notion of scapegoating, that one can feel better about one's lot and one's life and one's taste in the world and their meaning if others are going to be destabilized in theirs and of, co- of course in that where we're not alone in that we did see that also with the with the trump election in america but unlike america we haven't yet <laughs> voted out the government the vote leave government who have been at the heart of this project and of course we can't really vote out brexit we're sort of stuck with it but i don't think this unresolved identity crisis is going to go away i think it's going to become more prominent i think we're going to get more notions of exceptionalism i think the financial impact of it will really hit next year and i think the way out of that is going to be more more of the same from the current leadership that we have and you know more widely this discussion that we've been having more intensely since the Black Lives Matters protests and and the killing of George Floyd in the summer about empire. I don't think that is a discussion that is just about statues and museums and just our history. It's also about the legacy of colonialism, but it's also about how Britain sees itself. And until it really confronts that and stops talking just about the Blitz spirit and empire 2.0 and ruling the waves again, I think our problems are unfortunately going to continue. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about empire. For my Adrian Goldberg's talk show podcast, I interviewed Gisela Stewart, Gisela, former chair of the Vote Leave campaign. She sees the European Union itself as as an empire builder. Of course, part of the impetus for Vote Leave was the notion that we might have a a pan-European army, 
And Gisela, who was part of the team that helped to draw up the draft European constitution, said that this notion of ever closer union, when she challenged it, or even wanted to put a few checks and balances in there, she was viewed as a heretic. Just have a listen to what she has to say. I was British parliamentary representative in Brussels for 15 months, charged with drafting a European constitution. It seemed to me a perfectly reasonable project that if the European Union was taking on more political powers, it therefore had to have more political checks and balances in terms of of an electorate. And then I discovered, to my extraordinary surprise, that the European Union never progressed from its founding principle, that its structure was meant to protect governments from the people. If the people wanted something they didn't agree with, then it was a question of persuading them of the errors of their way, rather than changing the direction of travel. I thought if this is a voluntary union of nation states, which was always the assumption, then you had to have a clause which would allow you to leave. When I questioned the, the, the notion that this may not be the right way forward, and at the time insisted that there was a, a clause which would allow it to leave, it wasn't just that people disagreed with me. I, I, I was seen like a heretic who probably 500 years ago would have been burnt at the stakes. You know, there was this sort of horror. How can you even suggest that? So that's Gisela Stewart there. Very interesting stuff, Hadeep. I just wonder what you what you make of that notion that the European Union is is a kind of alternative empire in Europe. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? There's, it's almost this notion that there's only room for Britain to have one empire, and that that's its own. And some great writers like Fintan O'Toole quite insightfully look at the the UK, you know, the United Kingdom, and say that. In itself, that's a mini empire ruled over by Westminster. And actually joining something like the EU was never going to to work for Britain because it still has these sort of imperial ambitions. But of course, as I said, without without an empire to go with it, apart from Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, all of which is now looking very precarious with Brexit itself. But I think this notion of repression that the EU was sort of somehow dampening our freedoms is actually quite a powerful one. Just in September, Boris Johnson was asked in Parliament about why Italy and Germany had been able to get their coronavirus rates down compared to to Britain and asked whether it was because their testing and tracing systems were really efficient and more robust and just better organized. He said, no, I don't think that's the reason. I think actually Britain is different from other countries and that it's such a freedom loving country. And all these developments we've had across the world from you know freedom of speech to democracy to the rule of law over hundreds of years, they all come from Britain. And therefore our people are so freedom loving that it's very hard to tell them uniformly that they can't do this or they can't do that. And he was just saying that in September with with regards to the coronavirus, which is, you know, it's just a completely different area. And it's just incredible to the extent to which 
I think unconsciously we hold so many beliefs about what Britain is. A lot of them are myths, but I do think that's powerful. And this notion that the EU was becoming way too ambitious in what it wanted to achieve, that was never really going to sit well with a country like Britain, which itself hasn't resolved this this need for, for an empire by which to assert its identity on the global stage. And I think because that hasn't been resolved, i.e. what Britain became once the once its empire went, that insecurity will still remain. And Jonathan Liss, you've written about this question of identity and empire and how it plays into Brexit as well. Yeah, for me it's the most important overriding issue in the whole debate. It's one of the main roots of British Euroscepticism over the last 50 years, the sense that Britain had lost an empire it couldn't really accept had gone. So it was kind of mourning something at the same time it couldn't accept had been lost and felt it had been sucked into someone else's empire, a Franco-German project and that kind of intersects quite neatly with the Blitz as well. There are two major kind of historical narratives in the whole Brexit debate. One is the Second World War, this idea of standing alone against, importantly, the Germans. And the second one is the Empire, where Britain is actually rightfully at the top of the tree and finds itself finds it an indignity to be sitting around a table in a dialogue with equals when it should be leading. And, you know, there's a, there is an element even on the Remain side sometimes about this idea of leadership. I mean, the organisation that I've been a part of is called British Influence. It's not a name that I'd have chosen, but it's it was all about having influence in Europe, about Britain leading in Europe. And I, I don't think that leadership is a valuable thing on its own. Just like influence can be a bad influence or a good influence. Obviously, Britain has things it can contribute. It's not imperialistic to say that Britain can be a force for good in the world. It is problematic when you assert that by virtue of who you are or your history, that you have, that you've simply earned the right to dictate to other people or to lead other people without actually working with them. Dialogue is the most important thing. I remember speaking to people in the Brexit debate, diplomats in 2016, before we left, who were kind of confused about why the idea of dialogue was so troublesome to British people, why they had to kind of feel that they should be leading the conversation. And so it's kind of this idea that we've been chained in a European empire, you know, looking at Margaret, what Margaret Thatcher used to say about the English-speaking world against people who don't share our sort of values or importantly language and sort of looking to the mythical Anglosphere, which is heavily racialized because when Brexiters talk about the Commonwealth, they're talking about two Commonwealths. They're talking about the Commonwealth that they feel they have a kind of a natural right to rule, the non-white Commonwealth, if you like. And they have a, the Commonwealth of the former settler colonies, where there's a kind of a, a shared racial and cultural, economic affinity, if you like, so-called Kanzuk plus the United States, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the US. I suspect that all of us in this conversation were born 
after Britain had anything like a meaningful empire. As a child, I can remember toys, plastic toys, that were stamped Empire Made. But beyond that, I can't remember any discussion of empire in my family. I mean, neither of my parents came from the UK, which may help account for that. I don't know. But what I find really interesting about this conversation is that throughout my life, and I'm well into middle age now, the empire has never been spoken of, really. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be spoken about because it's about the reproduction of memory. It's about how Britain sees itself in the world, about the nation's idea of itself, about how we're the best in the world, whether it's through the lens of football or sport or cultural language. Obviously, the English language is so fundamental to this. Our language is a lingua franca. No one in England or Britain needs to learn any languages because we have this idea that we could go anywhere in the world and people speak in our language, which no one else in non-English speaking countries will experience. There's just an assumption that we kind of know best. This is extraordinary exceptionalism that gets passed down. You don't have to talk about the empire. You don't have to talk about the nuts and bolts of empire because it is absolutely embedded ensconced in the conversation in the identity that we kind of transmit in school in our daily interactions in the government discourse you know about how we are world leaders we're the best in the world we punch above our weight we're a great country great britain of course we're the best we're british there doesn't need to be any kind of historical underpinning it doesn't need to be based on fact it is based on on identity and myth and obviously the two are very closely linked I want to bring in Otto English now. And Otto, you're writing a book I know about fake history, but how it has real repercussions. Is there a chapter on British imperial history and Brexit? Well, there are several chapters. Just what Jonathan was just saying, you know, I mean, uniquely among the the bigger countries of Europe, Britain hasn't had a revolution or been invaded or had to come to terms with itself in in the last 200 years. So as winners, we never had to stare into our soul and question who we were in the same way that Germany did, or we had to come to terms with what had happened as France did to some extent after the Second World War. And fascinating to me is the fact that our propaganda from the Second World War became our Saturday afternoon entertainment. So if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, or even today, if you flick on the TV today, there are endless wartime or immediate post-wartime movies depicting essentially a propaganda image of Britain as this little nation standing against the might of the the Nazi war machine. Uh, Dad's Army, too, I think has had a massive... (laughs) seems a bit bizarre to say that, uh, that a popular family sitcom might have a huge impact on the psyche of a nation. But at the beginning of Dad's Army, there's this moment where the Nazi swastika arrows push the little Union Jack back across the English Channel and then corner it and push in on it and pincer it out, uh, giving the impression that Britain really was just protected by Captain Mannering and, and his fellow sort of comedy stock characters. And it's a lot of nonsense, you know, because Britain in 1940 was a hugely powerful country that could put on vast reserves of men and machinery 
and power. And we were a very, very big and powerful country. We had this massive empire. But the propaganda played us as this little nation held together by bits of string and men smoking pipes, fighting this big war machine. And, and that has lingered in the psyche, that sort of sense of being cornered by Europe. And I think that feeds partly into Brexit. We have to accept, though, don't we, Jonathan, that Brexit is a, a multifactorial thing, to, for want of a better phrase. There are people who may well not have that imperial mindset, or at least may not be conscious of having that imperial mindset, but who might be builders who feel threatened by the arrival of Polish builders in their town. There is this sense, isn't there, about Brexit, that it can be about other things? Or do you think that's all part of it? I'm just thinking if people have felt that their wages have been suppressed by freedom of movement of labour, for example, is that really part of an imperial mindset? No, of course, that would be ludicrous. So the 48% of people, many Lord Kitchener's planning the next assault on India or something. That's clearly nonsense. (laughs) There's a root, the ideological roots of a project and the reasons why people might support it. Obviously, there are links between Britain's conception of itself and our idea of immigrants, for example. The idea that Britain was a country that sent out people to take over the world didn't much like the idea of people coming into Britain, although that has obviously changed over the years. I, too, come from an immigrant background. But there are many, many reasons why people vote for Brexit, as we've always known. That is the root of our current misery, because there was never any kind of coherent ideology behind Brexit, other than a very vague sense of taking back control. But that was never articulated in any kind of practical way. So that's why you had some people who thought you could prioritise a kind of separation. There are people who kind of prioritise ending free movement. There are some people who want to stay in the single market and didn't mind so much about free movement to people. There are plenty of left-wing people who are very pro-immigration and were actually wanted to increase immigration from the rest of the world and found it discriminatory, which I always found such a ludicrous argument because there's never been anything stopping the British government from introducing free movement from the entire world if it wants to. So that was always, I, I just found it strange, the, the Lexit argument was strange. But, but these things were all kind of combined together in this pot where everyone could have whatever they wanted. But the absolute ideological underpinning of Brexit is the empire. Britain felt that it was running the world, that had been taken away, and it was now trapped in someone else's empire. And that conflicted with, uh, with Britain's idea of itself. I want to pick up on something Jonathan mentioned there, Lexit, the kind of left-wing Brexit, because if you are left-wing, you would reject the idea of imperialism wholeheartedly. Is it possible that there is a, a kind of a in inverted commas, from your point of view, respectable view of Brexit that that says, well, actually, it doesn't have to be about those things, but that there is still a, a proper argument for leaving the European Union. Hmm. I think that's an, an, an interesting point, Adrian. I think it also comes back to an important one that Jonathan was making about Brexit was sold as being anything to everyone. There was no one unifying concept behind why someone should vote to leave the EU. And I guess it's it's what you say is reasonable. Some people who consider themselves progressive may well think that an anti-imperialist notion of, of Brexit may be a progressive thing to do. I think 
what that has to be viewed within is what the Brexit project and, as Jonathan says, this ideological underpinning was actually presented as. And I think the most worrying thing for me was that Brexit ultimately is the sort of finest expression of the old imperial divide and rule, I think, that we can see in the modern modern era in terms of Great Britain and its identity. So divide and rule was, you know, a tactic that was used by Britain in its many colonies as a colonial tool of power. You know, you turn people against each other. You stop this notion of a collective bargaining and then a collective progressive alliance. And through that, you maintain power and you do that through othering, do that through division and stoking up difference where there traditionally isn't any. And I think that that is something that people who consider themselves progressive, I hoped really would have thought about that. Actually, you know, I think there are sort of principled reasons, as, as Jonathan said, as to why people voted to leave the EU. But I think the project itself was actually cloaked in something that was a lot darker. And yeah, what was about immigration and the types of people we want in Britain? Who is British? What what, what was Britain traditionally? What does it stand for? Is it sort of a, a, a white imperial nation, etc.? And a divide and rule is at the heart of that. And I think, yeah, you we'd want people who consider themselves to be progressive to also take into account that the project itself was actually... Unfortunately, it was that at its heart. And I think that is what will stay with us long after Brexit may or may not, you know, the technicalities of Brexit may or may not be resolved anytime soon. But I think the the deeper aspect of it, this notion of divide and rule, um, it is here to stay. And you see it now in in how the Johnson government is, is sort of operating with its culture wars, you know, which it's happy to amplify and lead. All these debates over Royal Britannia, the statues of Winston Churchill, a National Trust released a report about buildings and their colonial links and their links to slavery and the you know the government's up in arms about it and the prime minister's making statements about that and all of this is 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 part of that same idea of othering and whipping up division which i think is very negative and and i think progressives really 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 obviously need to be aware that that wider that wider project is going to continue otto you believe that Brexit is ill-founded. You've mocked the Prime Minister in your writings for Byline Times, the idea of an oven-ready deal, for example. And you've suggested that even if people ultimately know that they have been misled, they will be unwilling to admit it. And I think you drew a parallel with the, the Ponzi schemes in the United States. Yes, that's true. People people who are conned very rarely accept that they've been conned. And that was the case with the famous Ponzi scheme, the original Ponzi scheme in the US, where people who bought into the Ponzi scheme uh, were later offered a cash sum by the US government, you know, after Ponzi had gone to jail, saying, here's, the, here's some money. But they still held out for the returns, believing that he would come good on it, even as the guy languished in prison and the newspaper said it was all a con. And it's very similar too, I think, to a religion or a cult. 
on all sides, I've got to say, I don't. I think you've got to be balanced in this to some extent. You know, Remain also is, is a bit like a religion because Remainers also buy into a sort of dream. And but with Brexit and with Lexit and all of those things, it is very similar to how something like Christianity branches out into different strands: Catholicism, Protestantism, Calvinism. Everybody's got their own take on it, and there's the promise of a sort of deliverance to a better world at the end of it, if you just believe hard enough and if you just keep buying in. And some people, even Boris Johnson perhaps, are slightly agnostic, but come along for the ride. Yeah, it's extremely cultish, to be honest, (laughs) all of it. Britain has turned not into a big cult, but into a multitude of cults. And we are now engaged in fractional fighting between those cults as as we go forward. As I've been tweeting in the last couple of weeks, it's bizarrely similar to the kind of state ideologies of countries like North Korea, where they have this Jusha philosophy. It sets out these ideals of how the North Korean state should be, you know, and Jusha, which is the North Korean political thinking system, believes in political independence, economic self-reliance, and military independence. Well, those three tenets are smack bang what most Tory Brexters believe in. And even as we fight over statues and things, again, you know, you look at North Korea, a land of statues and big ideas, but ultimately, based on a sort of foundation of stupidity, that's the direction we're going in. I And I, that's what worries me. We're, we're heading in a very dangerous, cultish direction. And a lot of people are so invested in it that I don't think they'll ever be diverted from it. I think even as Armageddon happens, not Armageddon in a biblical sense, but Armageddon as in queues of traffic stretching back on the M2, people will still try and justify it. That's what cults always do. When you talk about Armageddon, though, I'm just struck by something David Cameron said in the run-up to the referendum. And he said that one of the reasons to vote to remain was to ensure that there was no future war in Europe. And he was laughed at at the time for saying that. But the European Union is at heart a peacekeeping mission. It was designed to mesh the economies of Germany and France initially, and then the rest of Europe, to ensure that people were so interdependent and to ensure that peoples of the European Union were able to travel freely and come to know each other in a way that ensured that war on the continent of Europe was never regarded as feasible again. I'm middle-aged, but my father had me at the exact same age I am now. And my father actually fought from 1939 to 1945 in the Second World War. My father was a old-school conservative, Tory voter, Tory councillor. My mother was secretary to Erie famous parliamentary MP. Both of my parents believed strongly that joining the EEC would stop what happened to their generation happening to mine. And I remember my father walking around talking to me when we evolved into joining the EU. 
I remember him saying to me explicitly, I believe in this because I don't want what happened to me to happen to your generation. The memory of what those people went through has been appropriated by people like Farage. They say they, they evoke all the symbolism of World War II when really the legacy of World War II and the world we built and the EEC and the EU has built was a legacy of peace that unrivaled in the last two or three hundred years in Europe. The EU has brought us together, has stopped us fighting each other, and that is a good thing. Otto English, and before that, Jonathan Liss, and Byline Times editor, Hadeep Matharu. Before we go, just a reminder that this podcast and the Byline Times itself doesn't owe allegiance to any political party. We aren't backed by a media tycoon, nor do we depend on funding from any corporate source. That's why we can hold money and power to account, without fear without favour. But we can only do it with your help. If you can't think of what to buy a friend or a loved one for Christmas, how about a subscription to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and costs just £36 a year. You can get more details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. My name's Adrian Goldberg. I'll be back next week with The Byline Times podcast. See you then. See you then.